0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Well, good evening. And we are in session number 20, if you can believe it, in our look at the book of Revelation. And we are studying again. This is the third uh, section of the outline that Jesus actually gives to the apostle. But uh, before we continue any further, as always, when we approach God's Word, we want to do so with a season of prayer. So, if you'll bow your hearts with me, Heavenly Father, as we consider this, uh, as we consider this precious book. And as we come before your throne to claim its promises, Lord, we ask that, again, you would open our hearts and minds to, to your word, that you would unveil for us that which you have in store, so that not only would we be edified, but, Lord, we would gain the knowledge and the wisdom necessary to help build up others in the faith. Be with those outside of our walls, Lord, that need a special healing touch from you, those who are Sick And, Lord, as our leaders continue to consider things uh, things that we, I don't think, ever thought that our society would have to face in our lifetimes. Lord, as we are in a series of unprecedented changes, we ask for your wisdom, your guidance, and your blessing upon our leaders, upon our representatives, and, Lord, upon us and our nation. So be with us now. Open us up to your word. And use us to be a blessing to others in the matchless name of Christ. We pray, Amen. Now, as we were taking a look, I asked you to consider a couple of, of <laughs> a couple of pieces of scripture uh, in the purpose and considering the overall purpose of the tribulation period. And one of them that I want you to consider in the book of Zechariah and the book of Hosea are these curious passages, this one from Zechariah, where he is prophesying, he's pinning down from the voice of God as he's hearing it. And these are regarding the day of the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 12, he writes, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they had pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. We see something unique in this passage of Scripture. We see God referring to himself in the first and in the third persons. And he also identifies himself as the one whom they have pierced. And this comes from an episode that we know very well in all four Gospels. I think that's all four Gospels, where a career Roman soldier disobeys a direct order to prove the death of Christ on the cross. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, if you take the rest of this chapter, and we've already covered this in previous sessions, so I'm not going to belabor the whole thing, but this is usually a triumphant prophecy about the end time. Until you get to this verse. And then there is mourning in Israel. as Israel recognizes its sin, and we find out that sin in the words of Hosea, Hosea 5:15. And this is another day of the Lord prophecy uh, where Jesus, excuse me, where God, through the voice of the prophet, uh, pins, then I will return to my lair, Until they have borne their guilt, Uh, that phrase is often translated as, until they have acknowledged their offense, and they will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So part of what you can get from these two passages is that the day of the Lord has as one of its ramifications the coming of the people of Israel to Christ As their Messiah. And I believe that we're actually going to see that in the passage that we're studying today. Now we talked a little bit about the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation where there are these collections of sevenfold somethings. There are seven seals and then there's a pause, a parenthetical statement after seal number six that we're going to actually be talking about today in this session then the seventh seal is opened and that splits up like the opening of a russian doll into seven trumpets and then the same pattern happens after trumpet number six there is a parenthetical statement a pause whatever you want to call it and then that sixth trumpet splits open into seven bowls of wrath and there is actually a, a pause between bowl number six and bowl number seven or vial number six and vial number seven whichever your translation has and that is the battle of Armageddon itself. Now, this is just a a quick illustration of what we're talking about. We've already covered the seals that have been opened, and we are right now in the space between seals 6 and 7. So this is what I'm just effectively calling the first pause. Uh, And this this is an already established biblical pattern that we read about when we were talking about Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, where there are 69 weeks that are all folded together. Then there's a pause, which we call today the church age. And then the seventh week of years, where three and a half weeks temple worship is once again back up and running. And then the person who has made the covenant with the people of Israel to allow them to begin again their temple worship is broken which ignites the tribulation period that we're stu- that we're studying about. There's something I want you to consider as well from the last time that we were here. This little passage. This is the last set of verses that we read from our last session. When the fallen rulers of the earth, those that are. Actually, it counts for rulers, rich men, poor men, slaves, the whole enchilada. They hide in caves. And they recognize, even though the church has been called out, they recognize what's going on. They recognize the time in which they are living in. And they they recognize because they're seeing it fulfilled. In verse 16, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the land, because the day, the great day of their wrath has come. And they ask the rhetorical question, who is able to stand? The passage that we're about to study answers that question. Who is able to stand? So these people are, are wanting to be hidden or wanting to be dead before the judgment of God is able to take place and be visited upon them. So the answer to that is those who are, those who choose confession and repentance instead of rebellion and death. Those who ask for God's forgiveness instead of denying His sovereignty. Those who are reliant on His grace instead of relying on their own self-sufficiency. So the people of the earth are still in a state of human wisdom. Their hearts have been hardened, their necks have been stiffened, and they don't recognize that grace is an option. So they ask the very rocks, in their own state of rebellion, they demand death over the judgment of God. But we're about to meet a group of people who chose the other course of action. Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. I believe we will be able to finish this entire chapter this evening. If you'll notice, I've been kind of pumping the brakes a little bit on our study to make sure that we can delve deeply within this book without necessarily getting marred in the weeds. So, the 144,000. Now, I know that glibly, uh, yesterday, or yesterday, the last time that we met, I mentioned that if the people with the... uh, The bicycles, the neckties, and the little name tags come to your door and say that they're part of the 144,000. I challenge you to ask them what tribe they're from, and we're about to see why in just a second. All right. Chapter 7, starting with verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree now this is an interesting statement tree why did he, why on earth did he include trees earth yes sea yes why trees i saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living god apparently a, a, a an emblem of authority He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees, there that is again, until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. So a couple of really interesting things here. First of all, what are the judgments of the four winds? There are four angels and we're... we're, the quarter, quor, excuse me, corners of the earth. Now, this is not saying that John believes that the earth is flat. We're talking about four cardinal points or four cardinal winds, as they were understood in that day. So, the term gonia is the Greek word for angle, corner, or quarter, which is probably the more literal translation that is being used in this passage. Four again is a number that's often associated with global action. Four horsemen of the apocalypse with a global work. Four quarters of the world, as we hear here. Four angels that are holding back the four winds. Anytime that you see that number, more often than not, it's talking about something that has a global implication. Part of the, this, it's also suggested that maybe this is part of the judgment of natural upheavals that we just finished. A little while ago, although that's speculation. Uh, Animos, that's another Greek word that was used here, which means a very strong tempestuous wind. So we're not just talking about, we're not just talking about average weather here. This word has one of two meanings. Number one is a tempest, a stormy wind. The other one is the four principal winds or cardinal winds, something akin to what we in the United States would recognize as the jet stream. Only it's the jet stream focused on one specific area. So we're not talking about a, a meaningless gust here that moves the clouds ever so gently along the horizon. We're talking about a wind capable of generating a tempestuous storm. What is not necessarily clearly understood and and is wildly speculated on is whether or whether or not the judgment being imposed in this section has to do with restraining the winds, holding them back, or causing them to increase in their potential violence. Either one is possible and the reason that we bring them up is uh, what do trees have to do with this. Now (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm not meaning to get political when I say the following, so please don't take it as such. How do trees breathe? When you and I take in a breath, we have muscles that line our ribcage and a, a flap of muscular tissue called the diaphragm beneath our lungs that keeps the digestive fluids from accidentally going where they should not go. So when we breathe... We create a vacuum which forces air in, so we can actively get oxygen into our systems. Trees, plants, do not have that kind of active respiration. They have a very minor version of what we do. Without moving wind across them, they don't get the CO2 that they need. So if you if you have a set of plants where they are becalmed for a little while, for lack of a better term, where there is no moving wind, eventually they will not get the CO2 they required to fix sugar. That's one possibility. The other possibility is, of course, that trees hold ground together. One of the reasons that that you cannot sail into a port near Smyrna anymore is because the Romans dug up the trees that lined that coast and the silt from around the area filled in the harbor. So it's possible that either type of judgment is is being talked about here. Either they withhold the wind and everything that is reliant upon the wind stops, or they cause a catastrophic flow of wind. We'll actually see more about these particular four angels later on because it's speculated that these are the same angels that have to do with the trumpet judgments later on. But they're commanded right now by this super angel, the angel that bears the seal of God, to halt their work until a special group of servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. And we'll, we'll see later on as we get into the work of the Antichrist um, as to why that seal has significance. Verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. This is not the church. It's spelled out in the black and white of scripture. These are of the children of Israel. This is not symbolism because otherwise you would not have the word tribe mentioned in there. These are the Jews. And there is a very Jewish thing that they're about to do that we're going to talk about later involving palm branches and shouts of Hosanna. Does that remind you of anything? We'll get to that in in just a moment. But going on, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Natali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, the, uh, the the significance, the usual significance of the number 12 in Scripture is to designate a fellowship under God. The number 13 is what you actually need to look out for, a 12 plus 1 relationship. 12 tribes under one God. 12 apostles under one Christ. So there is a fellowship under God represented by that number. Going on. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. Now, for a normal, well-adjusted person, they would probably keep reading. Since you have been studying Torah with me before this book, you might not necessarily qualify for the term well-adjusted anymore. As such, when you see the name Joseph mentioned as one of the tribes, it should cause your brain to halt for a second, to pause and consider. Why? Because Joseph was not recognized as a tribe. Because of his work in saving the family of Israel, Israel himself promoted him to equal status by adopting his two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his own. That's why whenever you see the, the the tribes of Israel listed, you will not see Joseph's name, but you will see the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. When they're going to war, usually the 12 tribes are mentioned, with, which effectively gives you a baker's dozen. It gives you 13 in all reality, but whenever you go to war, you leave out Levi because the Levites were exempted from military duty. Uh, And when political uh, things come up, more often than not, you see Dan excluded because, well, Dan ends up becoming a bunch of heretics. We'll actually talk about that in just a second. I appreciate the laughter, but I want you to pay attention to these things. I'm skipping over to uh, another section talking about the 144,000 in Revelation 14. This was from your reading from last week. Then I looked and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Notice that. These were listed as the people of Israel, of the family of Israel. These were Jews, literal Jews. But they are not only sporting now the name of God upon themselves, but the name of the Lamb, a.k.a. Christ. This is part of what got Martin Luther so angry when the Reformation was taking place because the church was being split apart. He believed that they were in the end times. And as such, he believed that the Jewish population of Germany should now be flocking into the body of Christ and that frustrated him. Let's move on. Verse two, I heard the sound, excuse me, I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters, a waterfall in other words, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So they're not exempted from the tribulation. They are coming in as as souls of departed from the tribulation. They had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who had not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who followed uh, the Lamb whenever, wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, we're not talking necessarily about sexual immorality here. One of the things, and again, this is conjecturable, but it's found so often in Scripture, I believe it to be true. God takes his covenantal relationship with his people very seriously. He notes several times in Scripture uh, and warns that the Lord your God is a jealous God. And when he describes the idolatry of his people, he refers to it as a state of fornication or adultery, where one spouse has been maritally unfaithful or sexually unfaithful to the other. In some cases, he actually refers to them as prostituting themselves before a foreign god. So I believe that that's what we're talking about here, that that these are Jews who came through the Great Tribulation period where the Antichrist was uh, promoting himself as God in the Holy of Holies and they refused to bow down to him. So these things we can gather. First, they were preserved through the Tribulation period. They are identified as being of the lineage of Israel and listed by tribal affiliation, something that didn't have to be done necessarily But the prophet, excuse me, the apostle goes into great detail to list them specifically, which tells me that this is not not symbolism we're dealing with. This is what he is seeing. They are found innocent of idolatry and claim salvation through Christ. And again, we have this curious case uh, where Joseph is mentioned, but there's another question here. Manasseh is mentioned, and yet there are 12 listed. That is three rows of four. So who's missing? Dan is missing. Dan, The tribe of Dan is completely blotted out from the record, and Ephraim's name has been replaced by his father's name. So let's let's take a quick aside here to address a heretical teaching that I think has has crept into the church. And I'm sorry to say that it's also something that has split many congregations uh, by, by churches majoring in the minors, looking at something that really doesn't matter so much. So I'm I'm mentioning this by way of your edification, one, so that you know it, and two, for apologetics' sake, so that if this comes around, in this church or any other church that you have something to arm yourself with. Um, first of all, regarding the, 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 the presumption of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, refers to an idea that when the northern kingdom went into its captivity before the, the kingdom of Judah did, that the Assyrian empire took the 10 tribes that make up the northern kingdom and Assyria actively tried to eliminate the population's ethnic identity so that they could not rebel being part of that empire, meaning that, that there is no more Naphtali, Zebulun, Manasseh, Ephraim, and so on, that they cease to exist as an ethnicity and they cease to exist culturally. There's two problems with that. First is scriptural, and I'll get to that in just a second. But secondly, the fact that uh, the people that kind of came up with this forgot that... I am a Kentuckian by birth. I'm currently a West Virginian. By residence, the same holds true for all the members of the 12 tribes. Israel was a confederation of tribal lands, 12 tribal lands, with the the tribe of Levi scattered throughout. Just because you are from the region of Zebulun doesn't necessarily mean you're from the tribe of Zebulun. Just because you are residing in the land of Judah doesn't mean that you happen to be of the tribe of Judah. They had that type of denotative and connotative relationship. But anyway, there's New Testament examples regarding the northern tribes in the book of James in, the, in, in 1 Peter. Uh, there's the fact that uh, Israel and Moses both prophesy over all 12 tribes. In Genesis and in Deuteronomy. And these are based on misconceptions taken from misreadings in uh, 2 Kings 17 and 2 Chronicles 6. This is the land of Israel as it was divided after the conquest. Um, the conquest of Joshua. Now Again, all of the tribes have their own tribal lands designated to them except for Levi. There's also this curious case where you'll notice that there's a tribe of Dan down next to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, he eventually disappears from that area and takes over some property up north because he can't defend his own property from the Philistines. And that dates back way, 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 way back to the the time of the Judges. So what this teaching, if you want to call it that, is saying is that Asher, Issachar, Manasseh, Zebulun, Ephraim, Gad, Naphtali, Dan, and Reuben no longer exist. And by implication, neither can Levi, which is hogwash. For one, the southern kingdom is made up of not two, but four tribes. There's the tribe of Levi that still had cities within the kingdom of Judah. Simeon, as we saw in the previous map, had a huge chunk of the land, but that state, if you will, gets later absorbed by Judah and by Benjamin. So in the southern kingdom, there aren't two tribes, but there are four. So if there are any missing tribes, there'd actually be eight. Are you with me so far? I know this is higher math for some, but don't worry about it. So just, just to instruct you about this, what had effectively happened when the civil war happened and Jeroboam took control of the northern kingdom, he instituted idol worship under his own control as a means of taking political charge of these 10 unruly tribes. And that resulted in a mass migration of both Levites and other um, faithful from the northern 10 into the southern kingdom of Judah he set up two of all things golden calf shrines, one in Bethel, which is located in the tribe area of Ephraim, and the other one, guess where? Dan, the two tribes that are not listed in Revelation, whose names were blotted out. Now before the Assyrian exile, many families moved to Israel from Judah, excuse me, from Israel to Judah out of political support for David's dynasty. Others moved there to continue faithfully worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem. And we actually have a recording uh, recorded case of a mass migration during the time of King Asa. And again, this is all before the, Babylonian, excuse me, the Assyrian captivity. When the Assyrians finally hit in 740 BC, give or take, uh, they, they did attempt this type of cultural extermination. But by that time, so many people had already infiltrated the southern kingdom that there is no way they could have accomplished that goal. This is a map of the, both exiles. The one in red that moves them up north into the, the Medo-Persian hill country up there, that's the Assyrian exile from the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And that's what they did. They spread the members out so that they, these are those that were, remained up north that were idolaters. Assyria basically wiped them out by getting them to intermarry and spreading them out so that they would not have anybody next to them that were of their own tribe, of their own family, of their own heritage. However, by that time, so many had migrated down south that when the Babylonian exile happened, they were protected. Because remember, Babylon's exile was limited by God himself to only 70 years with the promise that unlike the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom would return because they had remained faithful. In fact, when Cyrus commissions and gives financial incentives to the people of the southern kingdom to return to Jerusalem, uh, they were actually treated well enough to the point that a good I think it was seventy some odd percent of them stayed. when Peter starts to write his epistles, he's doing it from the from Babylon, where he is engaged in ministry. How's that for a surprise? Now, I know that some people say that that was a code word for Rome, but that's we'll we'll actually get into that. We'll deal with that at a later date. but even after. The Assyrian exile, King Hezekiah of Judah, calls for all the families of Israel to worship in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with him, meaning that there was still a remnant left in that land. Josiah, about 80 years later, accepts an offering for the sake of renovating the temple from listed Manasseh and Ephraim and all the rest of the remnant of the northern kingdom. And in the New Testament, The book of Acts chapter 26, the book of James from its very first verse, calls out that it's being addressed to the 12 tribes of Israel. The prophetess Anna who received and blessed the Christ child in her arms claims to have been from the tribe of Asher. That's a northern kingdom. So these tribes weren't lost. I found them. Guess where? In the Bible. So let's do away with that. Moving on, the tribe of Dan, uh, and I'd mentioned this previously, Dan actually had their land that was allotted to them along the Mediterranean seaboard, uh, but they aren't able to hold it up, so they abandoned their land and they head up north to the Golan Heights. That's listed in Judges 18. Moses actually predicts this, that he would take a leap from Bashan in Deuteronomy 33, when he's giving his his predictions, his prophecy, if you will, to the 12 tribes. Deborah actually points out their unfaithfulness in Judges chapter 5, that when Israel needed them to defend their land, they stayed on their ships and they would not pick up a weapon to defend the land of God. They're also completely omitted from the genealog- genealogical records of 1 Chronicles uh, chapters 1 through 8. So Dan, you could, you, you could kind of infer that the Holy Spirit doesn't like Dan. Throughout the word of God, of all the 12 tribes, Dan suffers because they turned their back on the land and on God. To the point that here at the back of the book, at the consummation of all things, we see that he is blotted out from the record. Dan was the site of the original scene of idolatry in the land of Israel. He is guilty of multiple accounts of reoccurring apostasy. He's actually listed as being under a curse by the prophet Jeremiah. And again, we mentioned that in Deuteronomy, Moses actually calls out the fact that idolaters, even the individuals or cities or tribes, whole tribes would have their name blotted out by God. But strangely enough, God's not finished with them. Even though they're not mentioned, they still apparently have an eternal destiny. It's listed in Genesis 49 that, they, that with the rest of the tribes, that he, Dan will still judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Ezekiel 48 lists Dan as having an inheritance in the millennial kingdom. But his, his punishment here apparently is that he will have none of his descendants protected or sealed through the tribulation period. And this is where Moses basically lays down uh, his, his own uh, warning to them. Be sure that there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe from among you today whose hearts turn away from the Lord our God and go to worship the gods of those nations. Be sure that there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself to be exempt And again, we're talking about individual people, individual families, individual clans, individual tribes. Some of them will consider themselves exempt. You're too good for this covenant. I will have peace even though I follow in my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him instead. His anger and jealousy will burn against that person and every curse written in the scroll will descend upon him. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and single him out for harm from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant written in his book of the law. So of the 144,000 that were saved from the Jewish population of the day, none of them are from Dan. God's hand of protection is taken off. Joseph and Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim's name is removed. Joseph, his father, substituted for it. They were also a tribe and a territory that were under idolatry. As the southernmost of the northern kingdom uh, Jeroboam's idea was basically to bracket the culture of Israel by having one of these shrines at the far north in Dan, the other one down in Ephraim. So as a result, and I think out of a sense of faithfulness towards to Joseph himself, the patriarch's name is used here instead of the tribe. Back to Revelation. Uh, Chapter 9, or verse 9, excuse me. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. So as John's looking out, he sees this group organized by the tribe, and then after he, he gets this realization, he suddenly sees a flood of souls, people that he can't number people from every lineage, every tribe, every nation, which again, no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I want you to notice that. They cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and called out with the angels and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Don't be ashamed of lifting the holy amen. Number one, we're Baptists. It's in our blood. Number two, it's scriptural. Black and white. Never lay down on the amen. Amen. But without looking, you know me by now, how many blessings are listed in that single verse? Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and strength. I defy any of you to count how many seven occurrences there are in the book of Revelation. And, and this, is, this is a continued build up from other saints that we've read about from the previous chapters too. So this is a sevenfold blessing declared by the throne of God. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in the white robes and where did they come from? He's he's giving John an excuse to ask the question. And I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter him. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them nor any scorching heat. And that's a curious phrase. I'm curious to know if that's foreshadowing to some of the judgments that we'll see upon the earth later on. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs to springs of the water of life and guide and God, excuse me, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So great multitude. These are distinct from both the 24 elders and the 144,000 and yet they come in right behind them on their heels almost they are gentiles from every ethnicity in some of my commentaries they they say that there should be, there could be other jews among them but their literary proximity hints to an ev- evangelical relationship let me translate that into english for you because they're on the heels of the 144,000 jews what is is kind of hinted at through their proximity is that after these group of the people of God comes to recognize Christ, and again, we have palm branches, branches waving. Then they evangelize the rest to the Jew first and then the Gentile, the Jew first and the Greek in some of your translations. But the idea is, given how, how this scene plays out, that once they recognize Christ, once they look upon him who they have pierced, and recognize their sin, recognize and confess it before Christ and accept him, they go and do what Israel was always intended to do, which is become a kingdom of priests, and invite others to come into the fold of God. They lift up a sevenfold praise to him, echoed by the angels, It's listed that they serve God constantly constantly from around his throne, that God is their shelter, that they are hereby relieved from all of the curse of mortality, hunger, thirst, intense sin. I already talked about the potential foreshadowing of judgments later to come, and that they recognize the lamb, meaning Christ, as their shepherd. The acceptance of the Messiah. When I talk about the palm branches, I want you to notice this too. Um, Number one, their robes are all washed in his blood, meaning they've accepted his sacrifice for redemption of their sin. They're waving the palm branches and they are shouting that salvation belongs to our God. This is an echo of what they were shouting on Palm Sunday when the Messiah presented himself as the Messiah to Israel when they shouted Yeshua Hosanna, Jesus Hosanna. Hosanna, we don't normally think of this, but translated literally means save us. Yeshua literally means meaning Savior. So as they're waving palm branches and Jesus is riding a donkey into Jerusalem, what they are literally shouting is Savior, save us. But here they are recognizing in the 144,000 and then everyone that are coming in with them that salvation, that saving act, belongs to God and has come through the Lamb. This is the fulfillment of Palm Sunday. Something I also want us to take a look at really quickly is what's the difference between the elders, whom I believe are a representation of the church, and the uh, 144,000 and the tribulation saints is what I've seen regarded in our commentaries. The 24 hour uh, elders, 24 hours, good grief. The 24 elders were given crowns when we first see them. The tribulation saints have no crowns. The 24 elders are given harps. The, the tribulation saints are given palm branches. The elders were not, supposedly because they had already priorly accepted Christ, as represented through the believers back during his earthly ministry, but that's, that's conjecture. We'll move on. The 24-hour elders were exempted from the tribulation, Tribulation saints were saved during the time of the tribulation. The elders sit upon their own thrones, seats, thronos, seat of power. The tribulation saints, on the other hand, stand before the throne. The 24 elders are recognized and called kings and priests, but it takes John asking somebody to understand who the tribulation saints were. So these are distinct people nevertheless brought into the family of God. All right. Saved during the tribulation. During the tribulation. Anything, anything else for us to consider? Or questions, comments? The, the question was on, uh, many people claim that they couldn't know what tribe that they were from because all the records were lost. Um, go to any synagogue today. Ask. To those even in the modern day who hold claim to the Jewish ancestry, their tribal lineage is still important to them. The records survived the Babylonian and the Assyrian exiles. We know this, again, because in the historical record of the Bible, there are examples given. But not AD Sorry? But not eighty 70. seventy. Well, when the temple was destroyed, though, they had their oral tradition to rely on, right? A lot of them, even if you couldn't recount who your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was necessarily, you could still hold that you are, let me use Jesus as an example, Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus son of Yosef of the tribe of Judah. At least that much you can hold on to and begin the record anew if you had to, which a lot of them apparently did. So while that is highly conjecturable, uh, I, I say that through their own tradition, they've still maintained it. At least that's what I've in my interactions with our local community here, that's what I've kind of come to understand. They, they would, they would, they would yes. even if they couldn't like in, in the Bible itself, you find examples, particularly with Jesus' lineage where he could trace his, well, in one case, he could trace his ancestry all the way back to Adam. But even if those records were lost, from generation one, starting with AD 70, after the Babylonian exile, you at least had your last name that you could count on. Uh, Jason, the son of Robbins of the tribe of Scotland. Um, you know, I could at least have that to pick back up on. So, and and also that is to say that pen and paper didn't exist so that when the exiles finally got to wherever they started putting down roots, they couldn't just put down some things that they could hand back over to their children and their succeeding generations. That's almost like saying that um, you might have your driver's license right now, but if America falls they'll forget about it. Okay we have a lot of who we are within our own living memories. That doesn't go away just because of a national disaster. So when you have something like this that takes place, uh, including the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, the temple was not their only source of record. They knew who they were individually. And just as the councils that became the Talmud later on happened, Saying that they couldn't put pen to paper on themselves and record their own memories is is unrealistic. But uh, I, I know that objection. I just don't find it to be possible. But I could be wrong. If all else fails, God knows It doesn't say necessarily who puts them together tribe by tribe. It could be the angels themselves who, after this type of diaspora, could declare that you are such and such son or daughter of so and so of the tribe of Yada. All right, so this could be a revelation to them as well from the open door. It doesn't say, but what we do know uh, just in modern time is is that I, I don't. I think we take our own ignorance from the early Middle Ages and we apply it to everybody. Like there's no way that the Jews um, could have had a, their own written language at the time of the Exodus. That's one that I'm, I've heard uh, when we do have proto-Jewish script in, in Flint mines in the northern part of Egypt, um, ten mines, excuse me. So, there is lots of conjecture that we build upon by thinking that the people of this era are so backwards compared to where we are now, they couldn't possibly have understood uh, enough to compile the word of God as it, is, as it currently exists. And that's, no, I'm not buying that. Anything else? Okay. If not, and if I haven't scared you off for next session, um, I realize that the Lost Tribes of Israel are a little bit of a, a rabbit trail from what we're concentrating on, but that's something that has been floating around for so long and preached in some pulpits as gospel, uh, just by way of your own edification, I thought it was something that needed to be addressed. Because, again, I have seen it actually rip churches apart that are so nitpicky on their own theology. What, what, what the, the argument? The argument is that there is... Not to the extent as that legend, that legend claims. The legend basically asserts that because of Assyria, the, identi- the, the ethnic identities of the 10 northern tribes were completely lost to time. And from the scriptural record itself, we know that that's not the case. Discussion that, that I'm a part of the lost... There is actually some of that. Uh, in fact, I believe it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that uh, that believes that um, there was a tribe of Israel, a lost tribe of Israel, that somehow managed to make its way to North American shores, and that's where the golden golden tablets that became the Book of Mormon originally came from. Yeah. So it's not just uh it's not just idle curiosity but there are actually doctrines built on this. Right. Right. So in in talking about um, the people of God as a whole, um, we have a bad habit of thinking that the church inherited everything. That the church has replaced Israel completely. That all of the promises set aside, including the destiny that is set aside for Israel has been nullified, voided out, because they rejected their Messiah. Well, no, they didn't. Not entirely. The um, the majority of them, that is certainly true in the religious establishment of the day. That's definitely true. But the first five plus thousand converts to Christianity were Jews. In fact, some churches today don't necessarily believe this, but Jesus Christ... Son, uh, <laughs> was a Jew. Imagine that. Um, you know, it, 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 this has been used time and time again to justify a lot of anti-Semitism. And that's one of the reasons that I, I want to draw that distinction in your hearing. Israel, Romans nineteen eleven, Paul's definitive Christ, uh, statement on Christian doctrine, Paul lines out that the church in Israel both have eternal destinies and they're separate destinies. They're still under the auspices of the one God. And in modern times, in order to be saved, you do have to accept Christ. Don't get me wrong with that. But the people of Israel, God has not stopped loving them. And even though they did not accept their Messiah, they will. Right, which is another thing that Paul writes in that the promises did come to, to Israel herself and that we are grafted into the root of Jesse is what, uh, what Paul writes down that we're effectively a branch off of the tribe of Judah. So all that to say, we do not replace Israel. We are part of the family, but the church has her own destiny. Israel has her own destiny. and Both of them are inexplicably linked to the Lamb of God. All right, I know that we're, we're a little past time now, but good discussion. Keep it going. Um for next time, read Revelation 8 and 9. If you have a chance, at least read Revelation 8. That's the immediate. I want you also to take a look at this passage in the book of Joshua, uh, 5 and 6, 5.13 through 6.27. And I want you to look at similarities between both passages. Journal what you're finding out, what you see, what you imagine, and hopefully you're still doing that. Um, Again, this is an opportunity for you to discover in your own life what you have learned previously and how it differs from the deep dive that we're learning now. One of the things that that I still scratch my head about, we have a a local church, a, a, a neighbor church, in fact, that did a revelation study in a month. And I'm scratching my head on, how? Yeah, really, I mean, I, you, you, this is one of those books where you have to pump the brakes on occasion to make sure that as you're talking about it, you're understanding what you're talking about. Um, so yes, we did kind of take one little rabbit trail. Again, I hope that, that, that you, you do get something out of that. But um, what we're starting to discover, I think, through all this, is our place in his story. We will be part of the church that is around the throne. We will be not necessarily one of the tribulation saints, but we'll be represented by those that are the elders. Why? Because there are only two people, two types of people listed in the Bible that are prophets and priests and kings, or at least priests and kings. One of them is Jesus Christ himself. The other one is you. Priest right now. Kings and queens later. Claim that promise. Just as you claim the promise of blessing of this book. Amen. So Heavenly Father, as we draw this time of study to a close, we thank you uh, for gifting us with curious minds. Minds that hunger and thirst for righteousness as well as Uh, a hungering and thirsting for your word please continue to use this time to bless those who hear your word proclaimed and use these efforts to both encourage and to strengthen the faith of all that hear as we commit ourselves in this time into your hands without any reservation take us and use us to continue to build your kingdom here in the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.